matter where you find yourself tonight, no matter what you've done, uh, no matter what you believe, we're really glad that you're here. And uh, RUF stands for Reformed University Fellowship, and we're one of the many campus ministries here on campus to walk alongside you during these formative years of college to help you grow in your faith. And so we are an imperfect crew of Christians trying to figure out together how to love God, how to love others, and how to love Wofford. But most fundamentally, we're a community bound by the reality that God loves us. Before we love God, before we love others, before we love Wofford, we're we're a community bound by the reality that God loves us. I'm Matt, I'm a campus minister. If I haven't met you, Caroline is in the back. She's our intern. We would love to meet with you, especially if you're a first year and realize like, I probably met a lot of you here tonight uh, for the first time or like randomly at the interest fair like two or three months ago, whenever that was. It's going by so quickly. So we're just glad, especially freshmen who are here tonight, we're really glad to see you. And uh, we hope that whether it's common prayer or meeting with Caroline or I, quads, we just want to make you feel at home at Wofford College and at home in a Christian community, um, even if this is the first Christian community you've ever been involved with. Um, this semester, we're exploring a series on relationships. Let me review what we've done so far so we're all on the same page uh, when we get into Genesis. So what we've done so far, um, we have been looking at various passages, kind of sprinkled out the scriptures, um, and we've been asking the question, what does it mean to love? What does it mean to love as a community Because we're made in the image of a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who eternally has existed in community. He's a relational God. This divine, eternal dance is what church historians have always called the life of the Trinity. And then he makes image bearers, um, human beings, and he says, look, it's not good that you're alone. To follow me in this fallen world means that you have to be in relationship. That's why we're doing it. And so far, like the first week we asked, like, what is love? We looked at 1 Corinthians 13, the classic wedding text. Love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy or boast. Then we looked at our first love. That's God's love for us. And then we kind of moved into the territory of loving neighbor, loving others. And so, so far with that, we've talked about friendship. How to do friendship. How to love what we've just called the other, the outsider, the outcast. And we looked at the woman at the well in John 4. And then last week we talked about loving the world through our vocation and work. And tonight, what we're going to be kind of continuing in that theme, we're going to talk about marriage and dating. Um, and we might spend two weeks on this, but we're at least going to get started tonight. Um, my goal would to be um, to cover Marriage, dating, and sex all in one sermon. Okay, y'all can pray for me, but uh, that's a lot. But we're going we're gonna to get after it, and, and hopefully we'll, we'll get through it together. I want to make a couple of caveats before we get into this. I realize that the, the topic of marriage and dating and sexuality, it brings up all kinds of things in us because all those things are powerful. When we think of marriage, we often think of our parents' marriage. And many of you uh, come from broken homes and your parents aren't married anymore. And so as I talk about marriage, I realize, and my parents are divorced. So as I'm preaching this, um, like, I'm thinking about that. I just want to name that. Um, And then maybe you think of, like, your longing for marriage. And for whatever reason, there's so much shame that you're ridden with. You're like, I will never be a spouse. 
I long to be a husband or wife, and I really have a hard time trusting God that he's going to provide a spouse for me one day. And then when we talk about um, dating, like all of us have such a broken relationship with dating, um, and that's certainly been the case uh, in, in my life. And so I want to say, like, I definitely don't want to have a tone, and I want to ask for patience if, if I do have this tone uh, during this talk as like this expert that has it all figured out. And it's like, hey, just do what I've done. I do not want to have that tone ever um, when we open the Bible together, but especially not this one. Um, God has been so kind to me and to Ivy in our marriage because of all the crazy brokenness that I brought into it from like imperfect dating. And then sexuality. I don't even have to tell you uh, the kinds of shame and doubt and failure that we all have with the broken sexuality like experiences that we have. Um, That's just the way that life in a fallen world affects us. So I just want to say, I realize, like, you were like, um, maybe you didn't realize we're talking about this tonight. You're like, wanting to leave. Um, So bear with me. Have patience and grace. In RUF, we want grace to be the foundational environment, not law. Okay? So we have grace for each other. Um, Look at Genesis 2, starting in 18. And while you're doing that, one of perhaps the most famous church father, and this is a, um, a, a church... In church history books, you're going to read about St. Augustine. And when you read about St. Augustine, you're going to read about like a prodigal who had affections and he sort of followed his affections around in his life until he became satisfied. And so he said things like, Lord, you've made me and everyone else for yourself. And until I find rest in you, I will continually be restless. And he actually had a broken uh, sexual experience in, in a fallen world. And this is something that he said. Listen to Augustine here. This is third to sixth century. I can't remember his timeline exactly, but around that. The single desire that dominated my search for delight was simply to love and to be loved. And he was on a search. The single desire that dominated my search for delight was simply to love and to be loved. That's me, and I suspect I'm not alone. Let's read Genesis 2, 18 to 25. I'm gonna pray and walk through it, all right? It's God's word. He hasn't, he's spoken to us not to give you rules to follow or me an exam to ace. He's spoken to you and to me because he loves us. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to all the birds and the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he'd made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said this. This is actually poetry in the original Hebrew. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
Let me pray and we'll walk through it, okay? Lord, your word is living and active. We know that's true because you are living and active. And yet, we will not hear you unless you slow us down because our minds are busy, our hearts are restless. And so we do ask that by your spirit, you would slow us down, that we might just not hear your word, but also do your word. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so uh, the game plan is this. You have the notes, actually the points in your handout uh, if you're the note-taking type. What marriage is and then what dating is. And we will actually bring, I'll, I'll talk about sex to kind of help us differentiate between the two. Okay, what marriage is. And again, this is an introduction into the subject of marriage. In no way is comprehensive, like it's not a comprehensive sermon. Um, But we can at least say three things about what marriage is according to the Christian faith. faith. And the first is this. Marriage is a promise to be faithful. Marriage is a promise to be faithful. According to the Christian faith, marriage is a promise. And in the Bible, we call it a covenant. We call it a covenant. That's the catch-all term. And we get this notion of covenant in the Bible from God in the way that he deals with his people. In the story of the Bible, you have the Lord promising a rebellious people and saying, look, I know you're unfaithful, but I will be faithful to you. You will be my people and I will be your God and I'll never leave you or forsake you. I am for you and I'm with you to be with his people, for his people. And with that promise, with that covenant comes like expectations, For what kind of relationship it's going to be. All relationships have expectations and a status and agreement. Uh, Not to earn God's approval. They already have his approval and love. But rather, the expectations that are set up for a relationship with God in the covenant is to enjoy the covenant. It's God saying, look, this isn't you to earn anything. I've already done that. You can never be good enough. But if you live this way... You will enjoy my covenant. You will enjoy my, my love for you. You'll experience my love. And so marriage is a promise. It's a promise in which two people commit themselves to mutual love and devotion publicly, emotionally, financially, spiritually, and exclusively. Um, marriage is a promise to give yourself to, to one another completely. It's a promise to love with your body. It's a promise to love with your finances, like utterly and completely saying to someone with vows and with your body and with a covenant, I am wholly yours and you are wholly mine. There is nothing more uh, of myself that I could give to you. And so it's a promise to love unconditionally and and for the long haul. This is important. And of, of course it is. I just officiated actually my first wedding. Um, in Alabama, uh, in my hometown, Huntsville, and it was for my childhood best friend. It was very cool. And so marriage is on my mind right now. And I thought about this promise dynamic of marriage. And it's not just like an arbitrary promise. Like, it's very, there's specificity to the promise. And the promise, in, in a lot of ways, is a promise to love unconditionally and love for the long haul. To love unconditionally that transcends circumstances, and we're going to talk about that. And then to love for the long haul, no matter what. You are doubling down, locking in with somebody saying, no matter what, I'm not moving. And that's why we have vows, the Christian service of marriage. You know these. I take you to be my wife, etc., to have and to hold. 
from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer and poorer, sickness and health and love to cherish till death to his part. And then there's the public dynamic of the vow in the presence of these witnesses. I make this vow to you. It's a promise. And so in verse 24 of your text, if you look there, we have this dynamic there. In verse 24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. In marriage, you experience this notion of like being truly naked and unashamed. And what there, there's all kinds of things we can say about that. And we're going to talk more about that when we get to the sex part of this sermon. Um, that sounds so strange when I say it out loud. Y'all know what I mean. Um, but basically it's this. Naked and unashamed is this. To be fully known in marriage, you're fully known, fully vulnerable, and yet fully loved, unashamed. There is no shame. There is nowhere to hide. You can be completely yourself, and you're completely known. And you will, look, listen, there, we've been married seven years, Ivy and I. Um, there is no greater intimacy, and I'm not just talking about sex, the act of sex, the level of like vulnerability and being known and loved by someone. There is nothing like the relationship that you experience in marriage, this naked and unashamed dynamic of being fully known and not rejected, but fully loved in being completely vulnerable. There's a show, y'all probably have at least heard of it. Um, I feel like this is getting date, like dated or maybe, is This Is Us over yet? It's not, okay, y'all know about it. Y'all know about it. Okay, great. So you have Kate. I actually, um, the, I only know uh, this is us about these this, these two people, Kate and Toby, the um, the couple. At least the one of the episodes that I saw. So Toby struggles with depression. He um, actually was in love and experienced acute depression, and it got so intense that uh, whoever he was in love with, I can't remember who she was, she left him. It was too intense. It was so much for her. He falls then in love. He falls in, uh, in love with Kate um, after this, and he starts getting depressed again. And they're on a walk, and this is essentially what he says. Look, I know that I'm getting depressed again. I know that it's awful. I know that I can be a lot. And I know that you probably want to leave. And I actually want to let you off the hook. Like, I get it if you want to leave. And here's what Kate says to him. He, she interrupts him and says, Toby, we made vows for better or for worse. We made vows for better or for worse. That's it. Like, that is what we're talking about. It's a promise. And it's, it's a promise that transcends circumstances. Loving, not just unconditionally, but for the long haul, no matter how it goes, um, no matter how you're doing emotionally, no matter how you're doing spiritually, no matter how you're doing financially, I'm not going anywhere. That's the promise. And I can tell you for Ivy and I, some of the like sweetest seasons of our marriage have been when we have walked through painful circumstances together, like the best years of like being known and knowing Ivy have been when we've suffered. Why? Because Ivy has not moved. Like the, the needle like has not moved on, on the love of, that she has for me through my brother dying a couple years ago, through the baggage from like my broken family coming up in fresh ways. She's not going anywhere and it changes me when I experience this. And it's through seasons of suffering that I've experienced it. And so it's a promise 
loving unconditionally, and loving for the long haul. It's not just um, a promise. The, the second thing is this. Marriage is a school of love. Marriage is a school of love. And here's what I mean. Those are my friend Robert Cunningham's words, not mine. Um, he's essentially get, getting at, it's like a relationship. It's an institution where like your character is formed in a way that like you cannot be formed um, emotionally and spiritually in any other relationship. Marriage involves the formation of your character. Um, one of the questions that I've been asking you guys this semester is who are you becoming? Not what do you study, not whether or not you're Greek or not, or whether you go to RUF or not. Who are you becoming? That's the formational college question. Not what's on your resume, who are you becoming? That, and in a lot of ways, that's a marriage question. Um, because as soon as we talk about marriage, we kind of have to talk about companionship. Because companionship and friendship is a huge part of marriage. It's a huge part. Like, you just kind of hang out all the time in a lot of ways. Like, you're just kind of buddies who have, like, shared finances and sleep together. Like, let's be honest. Like, it's, it's, it's like, amazing friendship. And when we talk about friendship, how do we talk about friendship? You are who you hang out with. You will become who your friends are. And y'all have experienced that. Juniors and seniors, you've experienced that. You become who your friends are. You and I know that. And in marriage, you are trained to become someone different. You are trained in the skills of forgiveness. In the school of love that is marriage, you learn how to love your neighbors together. Your home together becomes not just like a haven for you to cloister down and bunker down with your wife or your husband, but actually to open your home to extend love and hospitality to your neighbors and to a broken world that needs welcoming right? This iron sharpening iron talk, like dynamic that, that we talk about sometimes, it's helpful, but not in this like cliche coffee mug, like coffee shop way that you might see it like airbrushed on something or whatever. Like iron sharpening iron is uncomfortable. It's like tension. It's conflict to make something better. Like two people rubbing up against each other in conflict and tension to make each other better. That is it. That's the school of love that is marriage. This is, I don't want to sound idealistic here at all. This is difficult. Now, it's important, I wanted to say this, um, that we view marriage this way as this like character formational school of love and, and godliness because I see two trends, um, and I'm borrowing from my friend Robert again here, um, a couple trends as we think of marriage like culturally, and the first one I would say is this, naive idealism. Naive idealism. This is like bachelor episodes or bachelorette episodes. All your problems instantly vanish when you get married. They just do. Like the bachelor and bachelorette don't really say that, but watching the show, you can kind of like implicitly get caught up in that because it's an endless honeymoon. It really is. Not that I've seen it or anything. Um, I have. Um, Actually, during seminary, what, like, got kind of like hooked on The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, embarrassingly. So letting you guys in uh, to my world tonight, vulnerability. Um, and then, so uh, naive uh, idealism. Second, uh, I would say a cultural trend would be just pessimism. And this is like Frank and um, Claire Underwood in House of Cards, where they're like separate individuals who have their own separate worlds and empires, and they're just using the partnership and institution of marriage to like fulfill their own whatevers, 
right? They're, com- they're completely, they're basically roommates who like kind of don't even like each other if you've seen the show. So pessimism, there's not much hope there. There's not much change there. It's not a school of love. But the Bible affirms what my friend calls hopeful realism. Hopeful realism. I love this phrase. Realism in that marriage, your sins and struggles are not going to go away. You're bringing them in. You're bringing them in. When I meet with guys, and, uh, and it's not just for guys, like, Oh, my pornography addiction is just going to go away when my, my girlfriend and I can like, like start having sex finally. Sorry, man. That's not true. It's a lie. It's a lie. You're bringing it in. There's the realism, okay? And we got to be honest about that. Um, and the more time you spend with your, whoever you're dating and your spouse, you'll see their weaknesses and stains more um, because you can't hide. But there's also hope. This is where it comes in. Hopeful realism. There's hope because in Christ, you have the power and the freedom and by his spirit to actually change. In Christ, you're not bound by law and your inability to like be perfect or whatever and to be perfectly holy. So you can actually like own your crap with your spouse and say, oh, that's ugly. And I did not realize that like my family was so messed up and I thought that like, I did not realize how materialistic I was, or I did not realize how stingy I was with my time. And you can be honest because it's an environment of grace now, and you're both united to Jesus, and your sins don't define you anymore, and you can be honest about that. There's realism. But then you and I are bound to Jesus, and by his Spirit, he is so committed to changing us in the inside out, not just me and not just you, but together corporately, okay? Hopeful realism um, in the school of love that is marriage. Lastly... Marriage is a picture. Marriage is a picture. What's it a picture of? The gospel. It's a picture of the gospel. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. Marriage isn't just about the individual couple. Signs and pictures always point beyond itself. The ring points to something outside of itself. This table that we move, wherever it is, here it is, that with bread and wine on it on a Sunday morning is pointing to something outside of itself and trying to say, God, in his condescending love, because he knows we need help, he's like, I'm going to use these physical signs and physical institutions to say how much I love broken people. And in marriage, you see a picture of the gospel. And that's why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, he uses his favorite image for the gospel, and that's marriage. And Paul was single. The promise to be faithful in the love experience in marriage, love unconditionally and love for the long haul is experienced in marriage because it's a picture of Jesus' unconditional love to you and to me and his love for the long haul and faithfulness to you in the midst of our unfaithfulness. And so when the world sees a couple give and serve one another in self-sacrificial, self-giving self-denying love, they are seeing a living embodiment of the sacrificial love of Jesus. That's what it is. It's a picture. So it's a promise. We're about to move on from marriage, what marriage is. It's a promise. It's a school of love, and it's a picture of the gospel. Now, we're going to move to the second part, what dating is. What dating is? What is it? So anytime we talk about what dating is, we have to name what dating isn't, because here's the deal, y'all. Dating is not in the Bible. 
Dating is not in the Bible. Dating did not exist when the Bible was written. And if anyone makes you feel like it was or that dating is in the Bible, or that there's this cookie cutter way of dating, do not believe them, please. It is not in the Bible. They're wrong. Um, and what you have um, in dating, you have to say it's not marriage because, again, going back to every relationship, every promise covenant relationship has a status and it has set expectations. All of them do. Think of it this way. You have a relationship with your parents that has its own vibe and its own roles and its own set expectations, and it affects the way that you behave with your parents. It affects how you greet your parents. It affects how you talk to your parents. It affects how often you now call your parents now that you're away. And then think about your relationship to your, your professors, You have a status. You're my professor. I'm the student. And that informs the way that you talk to them, greet them. All the relational dynamics are set by the status and the terms and expectations of that relationship. So LeBron and J.R. Smith uh, on the Lakers. We just won. Got to talk about LeBron. Uh, He just won his uh, fourth championship. Uh, J.R. Smith and LeBron have a specific kind of relationship as teammates. And so J.R. Smith, if you know anything about him, you know that one of the things that he does is he takes his shirt off when he wins a championship. And so he goes shirtless and he goes and hugs LeBron because that's their vibe. That's the set expectations for their covenantal relationship. (laughs) I'm enjoying this way too much. Um, Here, so here's, here's my point though. When you mix this up, you get into trouble. Here's what I mean. If you treat your professors like your parents, it's going to get whack real fast. If you go like give them a bear hug the same way that you're going to give your mom a bear hug, they're not going to like that. Swice Good's not going to like that if you go like hug on him, okay? It's a weird dynamic because it's, the, the, it's, it's inappropriate for the set terms of the relationship and the status. Here's the deal with dating. It's so messy in dating because we don't have set terms in the Bible. We don't have set expectations in the Bible. And so dating is very elusive. It's very messy. And so when we expect our dating relationship to function like a marriage, a profound amount of pain and shame is the result. Do y'all hear that? When we expect marriage to carry as much weight and to function, dating to, to function like a marriage, we're, we're in for trouble. Because here's the truth. No matter how serious a couple is in their dating relationship, no matter how serious, committed they are, they are not married. They're not. They don't have a promise, covenantal bond together that they have done like in front of people formally. They haven't done that. And so there always can be, this is why in dating relationships, there's all kinds of insecurity there. Because like at the end of the day, when you're dating, you don't belong to that person formally. If you're dating somebody, you don't belong to anybody. What can be damaging about this, because we feel insecurity in our dating relationships, some of the things that we do is like double down in the commitment, almost like in an ownership way of the other person. And we control and we manipulate. Or we do things sexually or we, we say certain things to like, make up for that insecurity and lack of security that we have in, in dating because it's not a marriage. She's like, I'm going to double down on what I say and what I do, and we're going to like do more things sexually to make us feel more secure, right? 
This is what we can do because it's an elusive relationship that's not in the Bible and it's messy. We're trying to figure, out, figure it out, but that's, that's some of the dynamics when we expect dating to have the weight of marriage. This is, um, this is what happens. And this is why uh, I'm, I'm, I have another wedding this weekend. I'm a groomsman and one of my seminary friends, Stuart. This is why when Stuart got engaged, he was like, for the first time in his dating relationship with his now fiance, he like took a breath for the first time. He always was like insecure about their relationship because she could leave. It's like, Toby again, I'm getting depressed again. You can leave. I get it. I'm hard. Like, I'm difficult. You can go ahead and go away. There's always this insecurity. And I felt the same way when Ivy and I got married, like I, or got engaged. It's the first time I was like, okay, we're not there yet, but this is like a step in the formal direction. And I just could breathe because there's always this nagging, like, are the logistics going to work out in our timeline and what we want to do with our life? Is she going to get annoyed by me? Am I being too pushy? All the things, right? Okay. There's so much more to say about dating. That's why I might do another sermon on it, but I might not. Okay, now um, we are going to talk about sex. Okay, we're going to talk about sex now. And here, here's what we're going to say about it. And we are going to refer back to the naked and unashamed Genesis, the creational goodness um, of, of sexuality, because the first thing we can say about sex is that it's a good gift. Sex, according to the Bible, is a good gift. You're like, I've never heard a pastor say that before. Um, so in the creation account in Genesis, one of the first gifts that God gives human beings is sex, the gift of sex. In verse 25, again, Adam and Eve were both naked and unashamed. So here's the deal. Everything that I said about marriage earlier, that marriage is a promise, a school of love, and a picture of the gospel, all of that is affirmed and experienced when, when your spouse and when you have sex with your spouse, it's physically experienced. The promise, the school of love, and the picture of the gospel is embodied in the act of sex. And I'm convinced, like, along with so many others, like, it's the single most intimate and vulnerable fact that you can do because sex is a physical embodiment uh, of the spiritual realities of the covenant relationship that is marriage. Like, of course it's weighty because of what it's like pointing to beyond itself. And that's what we need to talk about next is that it's not just a good gift, it's a powerful gift. Sex is a powerful gift um, for many reasons, but I, I just want to highlight its power uh, in one way, in what it signifies. If there's anything that y'all zoom in on, just like come up for air and, and pay attention, it's this. This is a huge part of our series in general, but I, I think this is important. The, the powerful gift that is sex. Remember that marriage, what is it a picture of the gospel? Jesus' love for his church, for his people. And one of the ways that the Bible talks about salvation, it's not just about forgiveness of sins, okay? It's about union. Salvation, and Augustine was huge on that. It's about union. You were made for union with the Trinity and in uniting to Jesus by faith, that union with God is restored. You and I were made for that union. And that union was there in Genesis 1 and 2 before the intruder and the parasite that is sin comes in in Genesis 3. 
And through Jesus Christ, God has done everything to secure our salvation, which we will be fully and finally united to Jesus as husband and wife are united in the bedroom, y'all. It is that the marriage supper of the Lamb is what heaven is called, an endless wedding feast in which Jesus, the bridegroom, is finally and fully united to his bride that is the church. And that's why if you read like old school church father types when they talk about salvation, I was talking to my friend Robert about this. Like, they're kind of like, man, he's weird. Like, why is he talking about salvation like this? It almost feels and sounds erotic when you read them. Like, Augustine sounds kind of weird when you read him because he got this union dynamic. That sex and marriage is pointing to the, our union with Jesus Christ. That's why it's powerful. And that's why when couples, when you're dating and... Uh, and we're going to talk about the shame that comes with, with like sexual mistakes in a second, like when I land the plane. But like that's why when couples dating, dating have sex before they're married and one of them leave and break up, that's why it's like existentially jarring. Like there's like an existential and spiritual like betrayal involved that you feel. And it's because... It is such a powerful gift, and it's just in the wrong context. It's in the wrong relationship. That's why. And it's a te- like that weight, if you felt that before, and I know many of you have, that's why. It's because it's a weighty, powerful gift. Um, okay. Think of like a fire. Uh, this, is, this is a helpful illustration. Sex is like fire in that. <laughs> Um, uh, in a fireplace, it's great. In your living room, it's like very destructive, right? So um, we don't play with fire. Like we got to take it seriously. Um, all right. So what I was going to say, I, I just feel like I should say this. And I, I have, this is like kind of off the cuff. I don't have anything written right here. Um, sexual sin has a particular way of like making us hang our heads in shame with like profound power. I don't even have to tell you that. You know that. I know that. And you bring that into your marriage. I just want to say to you two things. The first thing is that if you have a speck of faith in Jesus Christ, like here tonight, you are absolutely clean. The blood of Jesus is completely sufficient to cover your sexual sin. I hope you can hear that. There is no shame with him. The second thing is this. There's real hope for you in your marriage. Your sexual sin is not going to ruin your marriage. It can because it's powerful, and it does because it's powerful. But there's real hope. There's real hope. So I don't... I do not want you to leave with any shame when it comes to your sexual sin, either in the way that you relate to Jesus or the way, to, the way that you like think about your spouse long-term, okay? It's gonna be real healing. All right, back to the script. I'm gonna close with this story. Um, and uh, I'm gonna read, this is, this is from a book, but just kind of hang in there with me. It's about a seminary professor and his wife. Um, <clears throat> Robert McKilkin is his name. Robert, Robert McKilkin was the president of Columbia International University and it was his dream job. 
few years into his role, it was discovered that his wife, Muriel, not Muriel, but Muriel, had Alzheimer's, and he was a renowned speaker. He traveled a lot. At home, his wife was getting sicker and sicker, so Robertson de- uh, decided he needed to step down from his role uh, as president. He's the president of the seminary. And he stayed with his wife for the next 15 years at home until she passed away. And listen to how he describes his relationship to his wife. And this was his letter to the university, okay? This is the husband. Recently, it has uh, become apparent that Muriel is uh, contented uh, most of the time. And she is with me, and she almost none of the time, when I'm away from her, she's so discontent unless I'm with her. It's not just discontent. She is filled with fear, even terror. If you've had anyone in your life with Alzheimer's, this is probably familiar to you. She's filled with fear and terror that she's lost me and always goes in search of me when I leave home. So it's clear to me that she needs me now full time. The decision uh, was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death to us, do us part. So, as I told the students and faculty, as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it. But so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of her debt. Duty uh, can become grim and stoic, but there is more. I love Muriel. She is a delight to me. I don't have to care for her. I get to. It is a high honor to care for so wonderful a person. One of the things that he left out, I know about this story. You know, when the husband would leave, this is crazy, um, so beautiful and profound. When he would leave the house and she would freak out, like, has he left me? She would go on these walks to find him and she would get lost trying to find him. It's just amazing. Like, she... Like her muscle memory was like, I got to go find him. I got to go find him. And she always would. Do you long to experience that kind of love? Of course you do. Augustine did too. Paul did too. David did too. I do too. And in Jesus Christ, united to him by faith, you already have it. You already have it. And marriage is simply a picture of it. That's all. It's a picture of it. Let me pray and we'll be done. Lord, thank you for your word. And um, we are happy that...